One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Affirmative action is back in the news. We discuss the history and future of this controversial policy. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. you too. We are here today. We're going to talk about a New York Times article in the Pearls, as well as what Congress is going to be facing at after August recess. We also are going to be talking about affirmative action in the main section of our show and what's on our mind outside of politics in the heels. But before we get started, we wanted to remind everyone that we are recording our first ever live podcast next week, Tuesday, August 15th in Nashville at Red Pepper Marketing. It's going to be really exciting. There's still tickets left, so you can go to our website. We have been putting the link in the show notes, and you can get your tickets. It's going to be great. I'm really, really, really excited about our first live podcast. And if you can't make it and you live in Nashville or you know people that live in Nashville, if every single one of you just told one person about our live podcast, that would be seriously awesome. It would be like a present for us, and we would appreciate it very much. We're super excited to do this. Congress is taking a little break. I guess they're tired from all the hard work they've done. Yeah. All that busy work, not doing anything. 
Sorry, I hate to, I mean, I hate to be like stereotypically bashing on Congress, but y'all really haven't done anything. This Congress deserves the bashing, I think, because they've saved all kinds of really hard work for after this research recess, and it's hard to see how they're going to get everything done. They keep talking about, as I discussed with Perry Bacon on Friday, how like tax reform is going to be easier. The budget's going to be easier than healthcare. I don't think so. Mm-mm. Oh, and also I see that everyone is passing the buck. I don't know if you've noticed this, but like I've read stories where con- con- Congress has been like, oh, well, it was the White House that insisted we do healthcare reform first. And then I've seen articles where the White House is insisting that it was Paul Ryan and Ryan's Priebus insisting they do healthcare reform first. So I don't know whose idea it was to do first, but it was a bad one because they weren't ready and it's easy to bash something, but harder to fix it. So, you know, I think that's slowed them down tremendously. And there's all this talk that the White House is not ready to move on. I don't think the constituencies are ready to move on. I think they're going to get ears full about healthcare while they're home on August recess. And so then to pivot and try to move to tax reform when they first have to lift the debt ceiling and fund the government, guys and girls, you got, you got a, you're got a Sisyphean task here. I think it's just not leadership, you know, to do all of this unbecoming blame game. And I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of at a loss what to say about people who have run so hard. And then when they get the opportunity to govern, talk about the Democrats being obstructionist. I'm, I don't see any of that right mm-hmm. now. I really don't. I mean, I have to give credit to probably Chuck Schumer, who seems to be maintaining a fairly high road approach to all of this. I mean, I guess it's easy to just say, well, let's sit back and watch these people self-destruct, but I don't know. I, I think that the Republican side of the aisle is going to have to find something to coalesce around and just maybe they just need to do one thing. I think the fact that they thought they were going to do healthcare and tax reform and fix the whole world in the first year speaks to how you can't do that. They need a parking lot. That's what the Republicans need right now. There's a list of things they're not going to work on and focus in. And like some people are still even mentioning infrastructure stuff. Like, come on, y'all. That's not going to happen. I mean, it's, you know, look, I guess there's a part of me that said that thinks, you know, my nuanced take, if I'm being very generous, is they are dealing with a president who does not support them, who does not understand the policy and is too busy going after CNN to sort of hit the road and drum up support for their legislative agendas. And that that's hard. That sucks. I feel bad for you guys. Um, But at the same time, you know, it's not like you guys didn't know the people you serve with. It's not like you didn't know your own party. It doesn't, it's not like you, you know, Donald Trump aside, didn't understand that there's deep disagreement within the Republican party about what to do next. And it's easy to get everybody on board when the votes don't have any real consequences, but surely you people are smart enough. I know Mitch McConnell is smart enough to understand that it's more than that. And I think, you know, I think Mitch McConnell is, you know, has a lot of an experience and has a, to a certain extent, well-earned reputation, but I'm realizing, you know, he sort of seemed so, um, you know, his sort of senatorial power was so big and he sort of became this, this character that was bigger than life and seemed almost, you know, I hate to use the word Voldemort, but sort of Voldemort ish. And I'm realizing like, no, he just has one trick, which is let me offer you some money for your place. And let me just buy you out. I feel like that's like his sort of one 
way to whip up votes. Like, let's see if we can pass out some cash and make this happen. And that's harder to do now than it has ever been. Not that that wasn't a successful strategy. It worked for Lyndon Johnson for a really long time. But, you know, and FDR and a lot of people in government, but like, you know, your party has made it exceptionally hard to do things like that. <laughs> and I just, I, it's, it's becoming clear to me that that was sort of his one strategy and it's not going to work this time. And so if it's not going to work for healthcare, I don't really understand how it's going to work for tax reform or infrastructure. We've talked about this with McConnell before. He's really not an ideologue. And mm-hmm. so there's this vacuum right now because the president doesn't have a clear agenda. His agenda is whatever wins the 24 hour news cycle. And McConnell doesn't really have an agenda other than to put points on the board in whatever way he can get them. And he's not doing that. Paul Ryan, I think, does have a philosophical approach to governing, but he's allowed it to become so compromised because of the president that it's not credible anymore. Right. It was always a hard sell to the American people. Fiscal responsibility, long-term planning, you know, cutting back in order to create some sustainability in federal programs. Those are not sexy, easy sells. But when you combine that with him making videos about appropriating money to build the wall, you know, you lose, you lose anybody who might've been with you on this stuff. Definitely. Like I'm not, I mean, and I feel like there's so much, you know, I guess if you don't have money to pass out, the only thing you do, or one of the things, other things you do have is your credibility. And if you sacrifice that at the altar of Donald Trump, that's going to make legislating that much harder. Right. Right. And there's a lot of legislating that needs to be done in the next couple of months. So I don't know, Congress, get some sleep, listen to your constituents and come back ready to work. Godspeed. I'm not hopeful. Maybe you guys are. So we had a listener, Caitlin, send us an editorial in the New York Times called Motherhood Isn't Sacrificed, It's Selfishness. Sacrifice, It's Selfishness. And it was really interesting. And we wanted to talk about it on the podcast because um, it's Definitely making, I think, a political point about the way in which um, our society talks about and speaks about mothers. The writer, who is Karen Rinaldi, um, wrote about how she went to on vacation and her mother said, Oh, that's not much of a vacation for you. I'll bet you can't wait to get back to work. Motherhood, it's the hardest job in the world. All sacrifice. And the writer really sort of um, bristled at this description of motherhood and made a really interesting and and good point that my motherhood is not a sacrifice, but a privilege and that um, reframing as a privilege helps sort of redirect the agency back to the mother, empowering her instead of sort of painting her as a mother uh, or as a martyr. And I just thought, I thought it was really interesting. What did you think, Beth? (sighs) I thought a lot of things. I thought that it was interesting. Even though she tried to acknowledge this point, I think it still felt like something written by someone who has a lot of advantages in life and is probably really hard for some women to read who are struggling through motherhood. And I don't just mean women in poverty or women who are raising children alone or women who are raising children in abusive relationships, but even women who have a lot of socioeconomic kind of perfect looking families you know, motherhood has days that are very difficult. What I think is the more interesting point is that like, so does fatherhood. Mm -hmm. And I guess my takeaway after thinking about it, this article is I don't think I want to call motherhood a privilege or a sacrifice. I don't think we need to put a label on it at all other than 
you're being a mom and you have these children and that's going to look a lot of different ways for a lot of different people. And it's going to feel like something different minute to minute. And the best that we can do as a society is be more supportive of whatever that experience looks like for everyone and do the same for dads. That's how I think you get around, you know, the author goes into the handmaid's tale and sort of the extremes of looking at women just as biological vessels. I think the the way to attack that really effectively that makes the experience of parenting that makes childhood that kind of makes everything better in society is to talk more about the role of fathers. Well, I think what I really liked about it, it reminded me of a quote I read this morning. I read one little um, chapter out of Tools of Titans, Tim Ferriss, who I don't, I'm not endorsing everything Tim Ferriss says. Let me just go on the record as I'm saying that, but I do enjoy this book. Um, and it was the section on BJ Miller. I don't know many people who, I don't know how many of y'all know about BJ Miller. He's a really popular Ted talk. He's a triple amputee that runs a peg. He's a palliative care physician that runs a hospice Zen hospice project in San Francisco. I've read about him before. I find him really fascinating. He says, um, at the end of life, you can let, let a lot of the rules that govern our daily lives fall out the window because you realize that we're walking around in systems and society and much of what consumes most of our days is not some natural order. And I think that's what appealed to me about this article mm-hmm. is that I think we treat motherhood and the way it functions within our system or our society as a natural order. And I think that's what she's pushing up against because it's not. The way that we talk about parenting, the way we um, as a society value or don't value the contributions of caregivers, which we've talked about on this podcast a lot before, is not the natural order. And I think when you do talk about motherhood as a big sacrifice and it's the hardest job on earth and there is a lot of the language that surrounds motherhood in particular that acts like it is sort of the natural way things are. And the way nat- natural way women come into the world and the way they are and the way they're supposed to be and the way mothering's supposed to be. And it really sets wrong with me and I don't enjoy it. And <laughs> that's what, and I don't think she does either. And I think that's the part that really appealed to me. I like where she said, um, that doesn't mean we don't want support, paid parental leave, more flexible working hours, publicly funded daycare, but the cultural shift has to happen for the policy to follow. Martyrs, after all, don't need or expect public services. And that's what I really like, because I think when you push about when you push back against the idea that motherhood is this individual sacrifice as opposed to um, a community function, an instinctual drive, all the very complicated things that lead someone to become a parent and the importance of parenting within our communities, within our country, within our society. And you say, okay, this is such this is so important to our society And it's not just this individual sacrifice. It's something that's important to all of us. It's something we should value. How can we make choices to reflect that? Um, And, you know, the easiest ones in the beginning are the way we talk about it. And I think that's sort of the point she's making. And it really appeals to me. I do. I I bristle at the way that we talk about mothers. I've talked about this before. and, um, And it starts the second you get pregnant. And it starts, she talks a lot about how, um, and this is a point I've made a lot of times, when you're pregnant, your community property, people feel like they can touch you. Uh, which is weird. And, um, and I just think that that is something we need to think carefully about and talk more and push hard against, um, as mothers, because I don't think it serves anybody. I agree with all of that. I think I'm resisting the word privilege because of two things. One, I worry about the impact on women who choose not to have children or who cannot have children for whatever reason, and making them feel like they're missing out on something 
um, that is, that, that makes them inherently undeserving or something. Do you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? I think we always have to be careful about the way we talk about that. The other thing is a part of motherhood today in the United States that I absolutely agree with your point is outside of the natural order is the way that we live for and through our children, not in the martyr sense, but in the sense that they're almost like accessories and that having like these picture perfect lives with our kids serves them and us that we're fulfilling our own egos through the way that we parent, that our kids should never suffer, that we should alleviate every point of pain or discomfort for them. I think that's all really problematic too. You know, I've said on the podcast before, I had this revelation when I realized that my children are not pets, they're people, and that I need to develop in them resilience and strength and an ability to manage pain and, and unhappiness. And so I don't know, it's a hard thing to frame because it, in some ways it is so basic to who we are. And I think every time we put a frame around it, we sort of take it to a place that inherently lacks some of the richness of, of what it is. Well, and I, you know, it reminds me of Kayla Moran's how to be a woman. I don't know if you've read that book is fantastic. And she does this, one of my favorite descriptions of what it's like to be a parent. And she does this like, sort of like it's, you know, it's popping champagne and a hot air balloon over Paris. It's every, you know, it's, and she does this really great sort of riff on how fantastic it is. And then you turn the page and she says, unless you don't want to have kids and you know what else? That's freaking awesome too. You know, like there, this, it's wonderful. It is not the only path to wonderful. Um, and she does a really, I like the contrast and the way she's always, the way she puts that in her book. And it's always really appealed to me. Like I, you know, I'm not going to tap down how happy my kids make me. Um, because it's not the only way to be happy. Like I don't have to sort of dampen that to say that you have to have kids to be happy. Cause I don't believe that I worship at the altar of Oprah. If anyone is proof that you don't need kids to be happy or live a fulfilling life. Um, look at this woman that we hold up as sort of the ideal of so many things. It also reminds me of what you just said is that have you, have you read the, um, essay by, and I always, I never know how to pronounce her name. I let Waldman, she's married to, um, the novelist, Michael Chabon, and she wrote an essay a few years ago, a long time ago, it was probably way more than a years ago called, I love my husband more than my kids. And she came on Oprah and people freaked out. Like they lost, (laughs) oh my God, they lost their minds over the fact that she said this because, and she said, look, you know, I love my children, but I do not think it is a good situation to be in love with your children. It is too much pressure for an eight-year-old for them to be your reason for living. But I think that the language of motherhood is sacrifice and motherhood is martyrdom and motherhood as sort of the, the peak, um, life experience that women are capable of, which is hugely problematic leads to that because when you build it up, you know, that's, that's, that's how you get there. It becomes the only path to happiness. It becomes the only path to like sort of your fulfillment as a woman and all this sort of pressure we put and it's look, it's not only terrible for people who choose not to have kids. It's terrible for moms too. It's too much pressure mm-hmm. for the kids and for the moms. And, um, well, I don't, I'm not, you know, over overjoyed or, you know, super into the idea that it's a privilege. Cause I think privilege is a very weighted word as well. I do think her overall point is well taken. Well, the whole experience of being alive is what you make it right. So you mm-hmm. can approach that beach vacation with kids as, gosh, this is a lot of work, or this is the most wonderful gift of the year. 
when really just both of those things are true, it yeah. it is exhausting and it is awesome. And you, your attitude about life is going to dictate a lot of those things. That's not unique to motherhood either. Amen. All right, let's move on and compliment the other side. We have a, a bipartisan effort. So we will be complimenting this group together, which is Senator Lamar Alexander and Senator Patty Murray, who are working on actually fixing Obamacare instead of just fulfilling a talking point. Bravo. They're going to have committee meetings and hearings. I'm really excited for them. Thank you guys. How about that? What, what, What a novel concept. That's amazing. What a great idea, guys. Legislating, hearings, experts. Let's talk about this. Work through it together. Both sides of the aisle. Bravo. Best of luck, Senators Alexander and Murray. So up next in the suit, we are going to be talking about affirmative action. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. 
Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. action has come back into the news in a big way because of some reporting from the New York Times that the Department of Justice would be working with plaintiffs in affirmative action lawsuits. And the New York Times really took the position that the Trump administration was signing on to this idea of reverse discrimination and was going to start standing up for white people who they felt were suffering at the hands of affirmative action policies. That wasn't exactly it. The Department of Justice has pushed back and said that they are taking up investigations of policies that came about under the Obama administration and were never tied up. The Department of Justice has also said that this is largely about the adverse impact of affirmative action on Asian Americans. So that's sort of why we're taking up this topic today. It's certainly a topic that requires a nuanced discussion, and we hope to have one. So a little bit of history. Affirmative action was first introduced by President John F. Kennedy in 1961 and required federally funded institutions to take measures to ensure that applicants are employed and that employees are treated during employment without regard to their race, creed, color, or national origin. In 1967, after facing pressure from the women's movement, President Johnson added gender professions to the order. And then there have been, I don't know, a million Supreme Court cases since then. Yeah, and you've, there are a couple of podcasts that have done some deep dives on those Supreme Court cases, and we'll link them in the show notes. There are a good number of people who are kind of committed to this as a cause, just taking on affirmative action situations where you have um, an almost indisputably qualified applicant turned down from going to Harvard or something because of Um, affirmative action policies and this feeling that race is being used in a discriminatory way. I have kind of a strong reaction to all of this, Sarah. I was curious about yours. Um, Well, I try to be um, super honest first when I talk about affirmative action that as a college-educated white woman, I'm a huge beneficiary of affirmative action. The HuffPo did like a write-up on this, and it's, you know, in 1960, it says, there were 1.6 males for every female graduating from a four-year university. By 2003, the numbers reversed. Women outnumbered men in colleges with 1.35 females for every male and women earning 57% of all bachelor degrees by 2009. So, you know, it has worked particularly for um, white women and has increased their paths to college education. And I'm really thankful for that. Um even if I didn't necessarily receive, I have no idea. I have no idea what transies at, you know, um, application process was like when I applied or if I benefited from sort of any kind of consideration like that, or if the women who did just opened the way for me, but either way, I'm very grateful for that. I think that, um, it's interesting when you read sort of the affirmative action language from Kennedy, that it's sort of like, let's all be colorblind. 
when I think of affirmative action as exactly the opposite, I don't think that, you know, being colorblind is only helpful if you have a colorblind system and we don't. And having a system that does pay attention to the, um, you know, to diversity and to considerations, because we're not all starting on equal ground here. And the assumption that we are is so, so ludicrous. And so, you know, I don't have any problem with affirmative action. I know that's going to be shocking to so many people, but, um, what, what, what is your strong reaction? I'm, I'm excited to hear. I have two strong reactions. The first one is I just don't think the court system is equipped to work on this problem. Mm. I really struggle with people taking university cases to courts and having courts weigh in on whether universities, even public universities should, you know, what mix of factors should determine admissions decisions. I think that's crazy. I also, and this is my second point. I also think it's crazy for people who often through their politics derail other people for having a sense of entitlement to express essentially that test scores and a resume make them entitled to be part of a company or an educational institution or whatever. I just think the hypocrisy in that is, is crazy. You don't, no one is entitled to go to Harvard. Word. Why but are people you in think court that. asserting that right? Oh, because people definitely think they have a right to go to go, a right to go to wherever their parents went, or a right to go where people that are like them went. Um, I have a I have a very low tolerance for entitled um, and this a sense of entitlement among sort of privileged classes. It, it bugs me. I know that there are people that have strong reactions to pr- privilege or entitlement among lower economics classes. That's just not, that's not, you do you, that's not what I, that's not what bothers me. That's not what crawls under my skin. It makes me feel like I'm itching all over. But, I, and I think that it's just so unfortunate because this idea that, and it, I think it's really, really taken cold, hold in our culture. And we'll share an Atlantic article that goes into this in more in depth, but the idea that there's like reverse racism and that all these white people are being punished. They shared a Twitter, um, a Twitter line from Ashley Ford, who was like, do you know how many white people truly and genuinely believe that black people get to go to college for free? First of all, who do, I, I mean, I believe her that people think this, but that is bananas. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it is really, there is this narrative that now it's hard to be a white person. It's hard to be a white man. It's hard to get into college because you don't have, um, minority status. It's just so crazy to me. Well, one of the Atlantic articles, there were a couple that we looked at in putting this episode together, pointed out that now looking for a mix of, of gender in college actually advantages men because Mm -hmm. women are outperforming men on standardized tests and women are applying in greater numbers. And so colleges are actually having to go out of their way now to have enough men in every class. And that's the thing. I think that there is this sense of some perfectly blind approach where we, where we are a pure meritocracy, whatever that means. I don't think that's what education is about. No, You know, I think education, when I think about the people I really learned from in college, they were the people with completely different life experiences from mine. 
And I hope that I brought something to the table. You know, you and I went to Transylvania as rural, you know, compared to other students there. We had very rural upbringings. Certainly my family, it's not like I was a legacy student or anything. I'm the first person that I know of in my family to go to a private school. I mean, I hope that my experience is being different from um, somebody who was third generation there brought something new to the table too. I think people react to these policies as though, as white people, as though they're always going to be disadvantaged by them when no, it's just saying other people have things to bring to the table too. And, and yes, all of our systems do tend to facilitate you white person, you wealthy person getting here and they don't facilitate everyone else getting here, but you are going to be enriched by their experiences too. And And here's where I struggle with the concept of quotas, which the Supreme Court has held are unacceptable in public universities. But I I struggle with the idea that we're going to put that burden on people who benefit from these policies as well. You know, the whole idea of tokenism. This was in the news in a big way this week because of a memo that was running around Google, where a senior engineer wrote this just... I cannot even get all the way through it because it makes me so angry. But this, um, this memo that said women just are wired differently than men. And that's why men are more successful in technology fields. And we ought to stop pushing up against that. It's not fair to women to have policies that are, that are so transparently trying to get women into these professions Um, that there's that backlash for men. It's also ridiculous to say that women can't be successful without those policies and don't need a little extra support getting there because of those attitudes existing. Like it's this horrible diagram where the arrows go every which way. Well, and you know, I think that the hard part about all of this is that people simultaneously think that our system is fair And that everyone is actually at their core different. I have a lot of conversations with women that believe that men and women are come out of the womb very, very different. And my favorite thing to say is that I heard a biologist say once that the difference between two individual women brain wise is way bigger than the difference between the average of men and the average of women brain wise. But that is just something that people, you know, I I talk a lot with friends about sort of because I have all boys and there's a lot of talk about, well, girls are really different and this is how girls are different. You'll see if you had girls, you'd see how different they are. Um, and I think that's also, I hear a lot of all that is also true of race. Now, the acceptable thing to do now is to attribute it to culture or socioeconomic status and see then I'm not being racist. I'm just pointing out the differences. And, you know, it's like, that's the best quote that stereo, it's not that stereotypes are untrue. It's that they're incomplete. And I was listening to the podcast. I've been talking a lot about the series seeing white. And he says, you know, even if we had no individual racists, and I think this is true of sexist too. Even if we had no individual prejudice, if nobody harbored any individual prejudice, because in these days and a, well, I don't know, I would have said this before Trump. Now I think people proudly claim their prejudice, but you know, even if we had no individual prejudice, prejudice would still exist because it is the system that is the problem. And that's why you can't have reverse racism because there is no systematic discrimination against white people. There are no systems of power that keep white people out of privilege. Um, 
even if that doesn't mean that all white people have access to privilege, of course it doesn't. But, you know, I think in that, so there's this sort of weird dance people do in which they insist that we're all colorblind, but that we all actually are different and probably should be treated different because at our core, we're different. That I feel like this weird dance and especially comes up with affirmative action when affirmative action is responding, you know, in my mind to the fact that we do have these systematic problems. And even if you had the most colorblind, you know, admissions person on the planet, they're still have a big old monkey brain that's been fed all the culture, cultural messages about women and about minorities and about, um, all, you know, different groups. And they're going to like, even if they don't want to, they're going to come into play. And that's why we need checks and balances because for better or for worse. And we've had conversations about this, you know, a college education is, you know, a really important step to take in our culture um, to better yourself and to improve your situation and to rise up the socioeconomic ladder. And just, you know, college was hugely important into just changing who I am as a person. And so if we don't have you can't you can't cure a system without another system to me. And I know that, you know, there's concern. No system is perfect. And are we just making it bigger and more complicated and less adaptable? And I get all that, but like, I don't know the solution. Um, otherwise, if less we have sort of systematic checks in place to make sure that these cultural prejudices and cultural systems of excluding people from power continue. So I am not saying that I don't think that we need systems in place to help counteract those cultural prejudices and those deeply entrenched um, norms that favor certain people and disadvantage other people. I also think that as long as we do that, and this is why I struggle with courts as well in these types of issues, as long as we do that, we will always get it wrong in some ways, right? It'll always be an imperfect solution. Doesn't mean we shouldn't try, but we should recognize it will always be imperfect. And it ignores where we really need to do the work, which is basically emotional health, because all of this boils down to insecurity on some level. Every time I find myself thinking or talking about fairness, I feel myself getting smaller because you almost always are, are bumping up against your own insecurities. This whole conversation about universities is a hundred percent about insecurity. You know, John perfect applicant who gets excluded from an Ivy league school in favor of more diverse candidates. John is going to be fine, but something is baked into him that says an Ivy league education is so critical to the future. Right. And, and we just keep reducing people through these formulas. It, it sickens me to hear this discussion from the department of justice about Asian Americans First of all, I think the term Asian American is incredibly reductive. Like America is a country. Asia is a continent. This is a hugely diverse group of people that we're just lumping into one category. And this whole model minority status that we've ascribed to Asian Americans, I think diminishes people from Asia and it diminishes people who aren't from Asia. And so I think we've got to start to do more work on just being open hearted and being intellectually curious and all the things we talk about on this podcast all the time. Because as long as we try to solve these entrenched norms without working on the, the feelings underlying each person's reaction to them, we're not going to get anywhere. Yeah. And, you know, 
I think the other thing that I really struggle with, it's not that, because I think the other, you know, we talked about this when we, at the beginning of the discussion about the podcast, it's not even just, it's people, it's bigger systems at play. I mean, there is literally like one guy funding all these lawsuits. It's not Mm -hmm. like Abigail Fisher was like, you know what? This really bothers me and I'm super, you know, insecure. I feel like people, people play on this for their own God knows why reasons. And it's just so frustrating because people, you know, it's not like the media or most people have the time to really, um, dig into the nuance of this. And so it becomes these talking points about something that is so complicated. And of course that happens anytime race or gender comes up in our culture. But I think that, you know, for me, if I was to pick one thing that I really wish we could shift the dialogue and I think it would help the discussion about affirmative action, it would help the discussion about, um, you know, police shootings, all these different, particularly, controversial flashpoints with regards to race. It's just this idea that it's not about sort of the individual racist. It's not about our individual prejudices. Yes, we all have them, but there are systems of power that have been in place for decades. And even if, you know, we had affirmative action that said, you know, full, let's just full, let's go full reparations and flip it. And we want total, we want quotas. We want the hardcore, Every only one white person in every call. I mean, just I'm just thinking about the most banana scenario I couldn't I can think of. Even if we did that, like that's not going to overturn the systems of power or, you know, all of a sudden basically fix the decades of injustices that have led to massive inequality between groups that we currently experience in our culture. And so. And it's also so frustrating because you have conversations about affirmative action and you can tell people are talking about quotas and you can't even do that anymore. I mean, it seems like affirmative action is definitely ripe for like sort of myths and false narratives more than some other topics. Well, that's right. And it, and I think that is because all of those group dynamics and systems that you were just talking about play to us on such base individual levels. I posted on our Facebook page an article by a woman who had tweeted about her experience of being in Cracker Barrel, and she was making this joke that she was surrounded by white people in Cracker Barrel and wondering if they would let her out. She was an African-American woman. Yeah. And she, what she received online was violent and misogynist and graphic and horrible. Mm. And when she complained about it to Facebook... Facebook did not do anything with the accounts that had sent that material to her. And so she started reposting the material that had been sent to her and her account was suspended. And so I post this article and even in the comment section of our podcast, which is usually, I think a really interesting space for discussion. I could feel um, the reaction to only her initial tweet about Cracker Barrel. Yep. And I think that is because everyone for whom Cracker Barrel or whiteness or um, that sort of country living thing, and, and I'm part of that. I had literally eaten a Cracker Barrel the day that I posted this article. So <laughs> that is in me. 
But I think it's because we you, you automatically go on the defensive. I'm not like that. I'm not racist. Why are you calling all white people racist? Aren't you just doing the thing that you are accusing other people of doing? Okay, there may be fairness in space and all of that, but also there's fairness in space around the life experiences that led her to make that joke. And I think I think about it this way. I don't want equality of outcome for everyone. Cause that's, what's going to happen, right? We're going to have this discussion and then I'm going to get emails from people that say, you're not really conservative because you want everybody not to have equal opportunity. You want them to have equal outcome. No, I don't want equal anything because I don't think equal exists because I do think we're all different and life is different for all of us. But what I think about is if your life is like you're in a car as an individual proceeding along a highway, these things are just about the conditions of the road that you're driving on. And for me, my road has mostly been green lights. It just has. I had a loving family and a very delightful childhood and parents who were able to help me go to the schools that I wanted to go to and higher education and all these things that have, that have just given me green lights on my road. There are other people whose road has been filled with detours and stop signs and all kinds of things that my road hasn't had. And my road could have those things in the future. I'm not deserving of getting to any particular place. And I don't think anybody else is either, but I do think we can start to pay attention to what kind of infrastructure we're asking each other to travel on. Mm. Yes, absolutely. And I, and I just feel like people talk out both sides of their mouth on this every time, you know, and especially you saw the, the Cracker Barrel article was so fantastic. And also my favorite part was my favorite part is when people use racial slurs to call someone a racist. I think that's amazing. Like, I think that is just some mental gymnastics that deserves some applause. Um, but you know, I, you know, I don't want equal outcome either because again, I don't think that exists, but like, I, you know, sort of just continue to drive on this point. I just want us to acknowledge the systems that were in place. And just because what happens with white people a lot, and I'm going to say white people, look, I am because there is race in America. And if you want to disagree with me, cool, but I'm probably not going to budge much because there is race. And it only affects some people. And that, and that I mean, you know, I don't think about my whiteness a lot because it doesn't affect me. People don't respond to me. People don't clutch their bags when I walk past. People don't follow me around in stores. Um, I have three sons that I do not worry sending out with Nerf guns. Um, so it just, it doesn't. And the idea that because race exists, that it affects us all equally, um, is just so crazy to me. And like I said, I think people really, you know, they believe that there are racial differences, you know, that there are differences between us because, and again, it's more socially acceptable to say culture or socioeconomic status, whatever, but you know, they want to say it affects us. And I see these differences and we all can see the differences. And this is true of gender too, but you know, we don't need to really make any rules that assume that that's the case. You know what I mean? Like we're going to, we, we want you to, you know, be reasonable and acknowledge we're different, 
But common sense says we need to treat everybody the same. What? I'm so good. You lost me somewhere along the way there. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. I have tried to start thinking about my whiteness. I have too, ever since I've been listening to this seeing white thing. And I'm trying to think about it without being defensive or apologetic, just as a thing that is. Yeah. 
And so that means that I have eaten a lot of casserole and been to Cracker Barrel a lot of times. Mm-hmm. I have realized this year, Chad and I have been talking about this a lot. We have been to a number of concerts over the past two years and we look around at the concerts and, and it is all white faces. Right. And what does that say about us and our choices and our culture and what we know and what we understand and what we don't. And I think that for me, that's, that's sort of the best that I can do. You know, I, I look around at men a lot and think, I wish you would think about your maleness because mm-hmm. I think it would help you understand my experience more effectively. Yep. And then I've been trying to push myself to the next level to think about the fact that I was called a woman at birth. And I, that is my lived experience and that that's not true for everybody. Right. I think the more that we can each consider those things, because I think that when people have these feelings about reverse discrimination or whatever, there's a sense of someone's trying to take something away from me and tell me that I'm less than. And what I want us to be is colorblind where we're all the same. When I think about my whiteness or my femaleness or the fact that I live out my assigned biological gender, it helps me realize that like other people are just doing that too. And I don't want to be colorblind in the sense that these things that make me, me are devalued and the things that make other people, them are devalued. Like, I think we can value all of those things. I don't know how we start teaching that, but I think a lot about my kids and like, how do I help Jane and Ellen have it mean something to them, you know, that they're white and they're girls and they grew up in Kentucky and, you know, here are the things. I don't know. Well, and two things I think about, I think about, um, we have a former classmate from Transy, Tracy Clayton, who's a very, very popular, wonderful podcaster on, um, another round, one of Buzzfeed's podcast. She's fantastic. And one of my favorite things she's ever said is, you know, you can enjoy black culture as a white person. Like that's cool. Cause I've been enjoying white culture forever. So you ask us to do that and act like it's just normal. But, you know, you can't watch Martin because it's a black show. Well, that doesn't make any sense. You know, like if you if just because a piece of pop culture is filled with black faces does not mean you can't enjoy it as a white person. And I do find myself feeling like, oh, that's sort of not for me. And then pushing myself to be like, so what? Watch it anyway. Enjoy it Mm -hmm. anyway. And I also try to think a lot about my privilege as a white woman because I have a very strong instinct to want to play being a woman as sort of a get out of racism free card. Like, well, I'm a woman, so I've been mistreated. So I get it. And that is not true. And just because I'm female is not get me out of my white privilege. And I try to think about that a lot. And I try to be very careful not to sort of be in a space in which, you know, the color of my skin didn't buy me access. And that, you know, it is, it is ludicrous to think that I share you know, this massive experience with, or I understand exactly what it's like to be a black woman because I do not. And, but it's so tempting to sort of play that card because it feels better to be on the side of people being discriminated against than to be on the side of people doing the discriminating always and forever. So, you know, I have to be really careful because I have that sort of, I want to do that. And I have to really be conscious of the fact that I still have a lot of privilege because of the color of my skin and because not just because of how I was treated from birth because of the color of my skin, but because of the system I was born into because 
you know, generations, my particularly family built a lot of wealth on property ownership that would not have been accessible to people, um, with black skin. And I had family members that gained college, college educations that most likely would not have been accessible to them had they been black. And so, you know, I try not to just think about the way I've been treated differently, but because the resources I have, because I'm white, that would not have been available to other people. And so, you know, it's hard and it sucks. It sucks to think about that. It sucks to think about that. I have family members that were slave owners. It is not a pleasant mental exercise. It is not a pleasant thing to think about often. Um, but you know, we can't, we can't create a world we want to live in without acknowledging the one we do. And I think that that's what affirmative action is trying to do. And I don't think, you know, I think that people it makes people uncomfortable because they don't want to acknowledge that people are treated differently because of the color of their skin or because of their gender. But if you really care so much about colorblindness, then you, we got to get there somehow. And it's not just going to be by crossing our fingers and making a wish. Yeah. And I just don't think we need to get there. I, I just don't. I mean, I think we need to get to equity and appreciation and, um, you know, past discrimination, but I don't think that means colorblindness. No. I think that well, means acknowledging our brains the... don't work like that. No. Our brains just don't work like that. No, they and classify is what they do. And I think they can classify without ranking. We were in the car with Jane and Ellen for a very long time coming to our vacation. And Jane was talking about her friends and she was like ranking her friends. Well, like this person better than that one because of this. And I listened for a while and I said, Hey Jane, I am really enjoying hearing about your friends. You don't need to decide who you like better than someone else. You can just say, gosh, I'm lucky to know all these different people and I enjoy them for different reasons. And she kind of was like, Hmm, okay. Um, and I think that's where I'm trying to be and what I mean when I say that I'm trying to think more about my whiteness and I think about how difficult it is to consider that your family had slave owners in it. And I can't even imagine what it would be like to consider that your ancestors were slaves. No one's backstory is painless um, on on any level. And, and we just don't have to rank those things, I think. I think we can just kind of come together and say, tell me about that. I'm reading Krista Tippett's Becoming Wise while I'm here at the beach and I was so struck by this poem she keeps referencing uh, with the line, are we not of interest to each other? Mm, I love that. And I think that's what affirmative action in, in the educational context is trying to get at. Are we not of interest to each other? Because a classroom full of people with the same resume, is, all those people are valuable and worthwhile, but they're not going to learn much from each other. Well, I think the hard answer is that no, some people are not of interest to other people. When you say, are you of interest to me? The answer is no, you're not. You know, I think that they're the hard reality of some people's reaction to affirmative action is it's not, I don't know if it's even necessarily a belief in that we are colorblind, but it, I think the meritocracy is really at the core of this in that there is a belief that, you know, it's a sort of bootstrap bullish that America in loves, which is you're here because you deserved it. And I don't necessarily need a classroom that's diverse. I want a classroom full of the smartest people that work the hardest to get there. And, um, that sounds great, but (laughs) I also think that is as big of a myth as being colorblind. Well, look around at the house that has built for us. 
Mm. Look around at our Congress and a lot of our institutions that are crumbling because we have decided that your SAT score must be an indicator of your worthiness to lead our society. It's not going well. It's just not. And that doesn't mean that people who succeed in those ways, I mean, we talked about this on an episode of we're both valedictorians. Like we're part of some of that, right? We're valedictorians who've been to law school. So it's, it's not like we are exempt from some of this criticism. It's also not like it's anything to be critical of. We just need more thoughts than that. And we need more life experiences than that. And we need to be careful when we're trying to build these new systems that we include multiple perspectives in the building. These are not problems that white people should try to fix. Nothing bugs me more than when men try to solve women's issues in the workplace, you know, because, and and it, it bugs me. I think we're all doing diversity wrong in corporate America in a sense, because if you adopt kind of policies where you say, I'm always going to have a woman on the committee, or I'm always going to have a person of color in the room. Um, that's great. And that's a good step in the right direction, but also you need to allow that woman to participate as a participant, not as a representative of every woman. Yeah. Right. And a person of color needs freedom to participate just as a person in the room, not as a representative of every person of color in your organization. We're not there yet. These are all things that we haven't, we haven't gotten our minds around. Well, and I think that, you know, the only thing I'd push back ever so slightly against is I have heard a lot of, um, black people and people of color say like, look, it's not, we can't fix it either. Like, because of the systems we have in place, white people have to take responsibility absolutely for the racism. And I, you know, I think that that it's so, so hard to walk the line in which you want to help address the problem, but you don't, um, come from a privileged perspective and that you better understand the problem. Like I am not saying that is easy. It is very hard but it doesn't make it any less important. And I think, you know, we just, we can't get there without conversations in which, you know, a lot of viewpoints are represented and we need that in college campuses. Again, like Nicholas has always says about the protests on college campuses. Of course, that's where they're doing. They have time. <laughs> they have the time to do it. And that's why college is great. Cause people have the time to sit around and fight and argue and think through these bigger issues. And if we don't have the people, um, particular groups in, um, represented that these issues predominantly affect, then how are we ever going to get a good sense of them? And I, I think that hundred percent agree with that. Yeah. And I think that that part of this privilege too is, you know, we talked about this before the podcast, like you are not an expert on someone else's experience. The idea that, you know, you really know what, what black people are against, or you really understand that, you know, you really think that black people are overestimating or women are overestimating sort of the discrimination they, they, they face like, Ooh, nothing will infuriate me quicker. Like, you don't know, please don't act like you do. Like, I don't want to hear somebody tell me, I don't want to hear a man tell me what it's like to be street harassed. So let's just not, let's not do that to each other. That doesn't go anywhere. Well, good. Well, let's not do it to each other within those groups. I don't need to tell another woman how she should feel because I've had that same experience. Right. We, we have to give each other room. What makes me think the most about trying to solve these problems in an inclusive way is the episode of Malcolm Gladwell's podcast that we were both so affected by about Brown versus the Board of Education. And there you have a court deciding to integrate schools without 
thinking about teachers. They just integrated Mm. students, but not teachers. And I've thought so much since I've listened to that podcast about the generations of damage done by not including the teachers and what that must have been like for students and for parents. And, you know, so we just have to be careful and, and we're not going to get all these things right. And we do need everyone at the table to fix these problems. We can't say that, you know, the people in positions of privilege are going to fix them for everyone else. And we can't burden the people who are not in those positions of privilege with the sole responsibility of fixing them. So affirmative action. We're not saying it's not hard, y'all. We're just saying it's worth it. Good summary? I think that's a good summary. All right. Up next in the heels, we're going to be talking about what's on our mind this week besides politics. So I forgot um, in another part of the show, so I'm going to do it right now in the heels, Beth, before we dive in, which is I had some thoughts on the whole introversion, extroversion conversation that you had with Emily and Perry. Yeah, I want to hear about that. First of all, I totally called. So my friend Elizabeth, who we, who I was on vacation with last week in Canada, can totally substantiate this accounting of the events. We were listening to the Emmy, Emily Ellsworth, and she was talking about extroverted politicians. And I said, I think you'd be surprised how many are introverted. I promise you Barack Obama is an introvert. And then Perry said the same thing. Yeah, I totally believe that Barack Obama is an introvert. I think that it's like, like, I think, you know, people, what what I use the example with Elizabeth is it's like people talk about meeting Oprah, you know, like Oprah's sort of introverted. Gail's the extroverted one. If you've ever watched Oprah and Gail interact out in public, you will see that. And it's sort of the same thing people say about Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. Like Tina Tina Fey is actually an introvert and Amy Poehler is extroverted. I think that happens a lot with celebrities. And I think that's also true of politicians that you would be surprised how many people and in the public eye are not actually extroverts. Um, and that when you, cause you think they're going to be a certain way when you meet them in person, you're like, huh, that is not exactly how I expected you to be. Like, yeah, obviously Bill Clinton is definitely an extrovert, but I would not be surprised if Hillary Clinton was not. Um, I just think that there's a, it's a weird thing people do. And I, and you know, I kind of you, you the kind you, the things you said about me being an extrovert are very kind, but I'm also very like a person that, I get to a point where either I'm done and I'm sure everybody gets, I don't think there's an extrovert on the planet that can just go for days and days and days meeting people and talking to people. But also like, there's a part of me that like does not particularly enjoy small talk. Like I really have to feel like I'm getting something from the conversation because I'm such a curious driven learner kind of person, but I I can almost get there with anybody. And maybe that's the extra part of my extroverted part of myself. But I, yeah, I do think you'd be surprised how many politicians are probably not extroverts. Well, I think it's that neither introverts nor extroverts should be reduced to one dimension. Yeah, totally. But I enjoyed the conversation. We got lots and lots of feedback about it. It was, I thought maybe we should do a podcast about personality types because we need, yeah, we should. And we we need to, because Anne Bogle just wrote a book about reading personalities and personality types. And I would love to hear what she says about politicians um, and whether they're introverts or extroverts. So we'll invite Anne on the podcast. That'll be a fun one. Uh, so what's on your mind? I can't imagine that's not just vacation on both of our minds. I'm wrapping one up and you're on one right now. Yes, I am in Hilton Head, South Carolina, where we come every year for a week because I feel just content on a cellular level as soon as I get to this island. I don't know what it is. I love the Spanish moss. I love the palm trees. I love the magnolias. I love the cicadas. I like everything here feels like it is just kind of vibrating with the best of life and 
it makes me very happy. So I'm pretty chill and I'm just spending my days on the beach and in the swimming pool with my girls. Yeah. We vacation, um, have in the past and plan to do again often. My f- same friend, Elizabeth's family owns a house on Fripp Island, South Carolina, which is very near Hilton Head. And I always say it's like the best combination of Southern and beach, like especially the food. And I do love it. I feel, um, just calm. It feels like even before I go in the water, I've been like submerged in something very relaxing. So yeah, I just, I love it there, but we took a very different vacation. (laughs) We took seven kids up through Niagara Falls and saw, um, the falls, which all the kids, which was very fun. We went through a adorable little town called Niagara on the lake and saw, um, a little play with the kids that was beautiful and well done. And then we went up to Toronto and did sort of, we would do a big city day where we'd walk around Chinatown and Kensington market. And then we went for a day, um, to hike and swim in a quarry. Then we went back to the city and had a big city day. Elizabeth and I went on a pastry crawl, which is a beautiful thing that should be replicated everywhere. And then, um, we went up in the CN tower and saw Toronto and did all that. And then we went, um, to Toronto islands and had sort of a beach day and then had one last big city day before we left. It was exhausting. I have to send out a huge thank you to our listener, Max, who gave me all kinds of amazing restaurant referrals and hooked me up with a babysitter, Elizabeth, who was wonderful. So we got to go out for an adults only dinner to amazing sushi because my kids eat sushi now, which has made sushi like a battle to the death of who gets the most sushi. And they're just so grubby and they're all over my sushi. I strongly preferred it when they didn't eat sushi, but Hey, I like it having adventurous eaters. And that's what we did like the whole week. Toronto, like 65% of Toronto's population is not from Canada. So the food scene there is unbelievable. I felt like I was just like went a tour around the globe, uh, via my mouth. So we had a wonderful time. Highly recommend Toronto. Canada is Canada's 150th anniversary this year. So there's all kinds of cool kind of Canada 150 stuff and then all the national parks are free. So we had a blast, 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 and came home. School starts on Thursday. And just to make it super interesting, we got a puppy today. So <laughs> we are living at top warp speed right now in the Holland household. Well, and we're headed to Nashville next week too. So as soon as we get back on Sunday and we'll head to Nashville on Monday, it's going to be an interesting few days, but it'll be really exciting. Did you have a good birthday? I did have a good birthday. Um, I had a really fun sort of um, chill day. And then we drove to Lexington that night and Elizabeth had a cookie cake for me. And I love cookie cake. And uh, I picked out a present while we're in Toronto. So yeah, I had a great birthday. I really, really love birthdays. So I'm like the obnoxious party person making everyone sing to me. And so yeah, loved it. Good. Well, thank you so much to Emily and Perry for filling in for you, but I'm super happy that you're back and thank you all for listening. As always, we want to thank Nicholas, our executive producer, as well as our executive producers, Tracy, Leslie, and Sabrina. Please go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to help support what we're doing here. We are so close to our initial goal and would really love your help getting over that $3,000 a month mark so that we can produce more content for you. You can follow us on social media at pantsuitpolitics on Twitter and Pantsy Politics on Facebook and Instagram. Leave us a review on the Apple Podcast app. And until Friday's episode, keep it nuanced, y'all.